It is our privilege uh, to be with the Benedictine community here at the Monastery of the Holy Cross uh, to ordain to the diaconate Timothy Farrell. I greet especially Father Peter Funk, the prior of the community and his fellow Benedictine brothers, uh, Timothy's parents and guests, and the benefactors and friends of the monastery. This is a festive day for the monks as they see one of their brothers advance to greater service here in the monastery with duties strategic to this ancient order that has been part of the church's official ministry described already in the New Testament. Years of prayer and study have brought Timothy here to this incredibly humbling moment. He is poised to officially take on the task of ministry the church is defined for the diaconate. And he does this with great joy and great trembling. Yet with the help of all of you here today, if you continue to pray for him, as you already have been over the years, Timothy will be more than able to do what is asked of him in the ministry of deacon. With sacred ordination, he will draw new strength from the gift of the Holy Spirit, which he first received in baptism and confirmation. He will don the distinct sanctuary vesture of a deacon and assist at the church's worship as minister of the word and of the altar. Deacons are also given the power to baptize, bring viaticum to the dying, and lead the rites of burial. He will make himself servant to everyone. As minister of the altar, Timothy will proclaim the gospel, prepare the elements for the sacrifice, and give the Lord's body and blood to the people, and preside over public prayer and other contexts. Once he is consecrated by the laying on of hands that comes to us from the apostles, he will be bound more closely to the altar. He will perform works of charity in the name of the bishop and the prior of his monastery. And from the way he goes about these duties, may you recognize him as a disciple of Jesus Christ who came to serve and not be served. The ministries of deacon, priest, and bishop provide official leadership for the church and are infused by the power of the Paschal mystery, namely the passion, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These ministries have no relevance save for the infusion given them by the Lord's pouring out of his life for the salvation of the human race. We have followed that terrible course of suffering and death of Jesus in the church's liturgies the past week. Jesus was executed in a most gruesome way that anyone could die at that time in history. The ancient world had its own barbarity in its treatment of undesirables and inferiors. 
as the Eucharistic prayer of the Mass states so eloquently. He handed himself over to death and did not disdain to be nailed for our sake to the wood of a cross. Part of our journey through the recall of the Lord's suffering and death was the challenge to receive to the challenge that we receive to identify where we exactly stand on the issue of Calvary. Uh, most importantly, where do we find ourselves in the story? Do we stand with Jesus or against him? And we perhaps see ourselves as Veronica, who sympathetically wipes his blood-drenched and battered face or Simon of Cyrene, who helps Jesus carry his heavy cross along the death march to Calvary's hill? Or are we perhaps the Jerusalem women who cried empathetically upon looking at him? Are we the howling mob, or the hand-washing Pilate, or the timid disciples who abandoned Jesus by running away to hide, denying they ever knew him. We have moved with Jesus and with these questions through his passion and death. Now we must move with Jesus from the tomb to the surprising news of resurrection with still another question, the Lord has risen from his tomb. Have we risen from ours? The Christian says to himself and herself, My Lord has risen and is alive, but have I risen from the depth of my sins? And am I alive with his grace this holy season? Have I soaked into my heart and soul the rays of redemption, or am I living as if I was never redeemed? If you and I have not risen from our own tombs, then the resurrection of the Lord from his tomb has little, if any, meaning for us. Christian faith will mean little to us. It comes down to a matter of discipleship. There are people out there, even baptized people we know and befriend, even love, who consider themselves good people, who admire Jesus Christ as a good man among many who lived back then, but somehow ran afoul of the authorities and was given a death sentence. And increasingly, his wisdom has endured through the ages. But these same people who claim to admire Jesus Christ and who claim to be good people people whom we know and love, will not hand their lives over to him. People tend to think of Jesus as a figure of the past instead of as a power in the present. And for many, unfortunately, Jesus is a vague figure mentioned in religion classes of their childhood, but their lives show little to no trace of the impact of Jesus. Truth be told, Jesus does not want our admiration of him. He wants our discipleship. 
there's a difference. Simply admiring Jesus Christ as a good man from some time in the past would not get you saved. Being a disciple of Jesus demands a conscientious, calculated, intentional, and determined commitment made to him and his counsel. From this rationale, ordination today is not for Timothy, as if some career post. Ordination is precisely for you sitting in the pews in the matter of sacrificial service that Jesus paid us by his distinct life and pattern. The Lord has set an example for Timothy to follow. Some people arrive at discipleship first through doubt and question. What was the Apostle Thomas doing between the first and the second Sundays of Easter when he wasn't with the others? Well, we don't know. But his mind must have been tormented with all kinds of questions. Life on this earth is no easy assignment for any of us. And Timothy here with us must have certain questions, given the awesomeness of what is meant to serve Christ in this manner. Was it possible that Jesus was alive? Thomas, of course, had seen the wounds. He had watched Jesus die. But the other disciples were claiming they had seen the Lord last Sunday afterwards. Were they all deluded in some way? Had they gotten together and agreed to tell the same lie? But why would they do such a thing? It doesn't quite make sense, and no lie of that nature would ever last. You see what Thomas was doing. He was doubting his doubts. But perhaps, just perhaps, his friends were right, and he was wrong. And if that was true, he wanted to know it. These Easter days, we are reaffirming our faith in Jesus and passing this Easter faith to others we know and love. When all thought Good Friday was the end of the story, the story leaves in quotation marks to be continued. To be continued, in other words, through each our lives and lively faith from this day forward. It's the only way the sacred story can remain alive. If each of you take it firmly within hand and heart and make it the reason why you breathe and why you get up in the morning. Thomas thought the Lord was dead. And for Thomas, like us, I suppose certain things in life are just too bad not to be true, namely the crucifixions that befall us. Young Jewish men that day feared running afoul of the authorities, for they knew they had no adequate defense, being a subjugated race of people. Stepping out of line, Caesar's legions would nail your flesh to a tree. In that world, resurrections were just too good to be true. Until God
God quickly rewrote the script by giving life back to his son. The others assure Thomas that Jesus is alive, that they themselves have seen and heard him, and that they have been with him. For some of our friends, even our enemies, and neighbors and relatives, in-laws and outlaws, Jesus Christ is, as it were, dead, because he hardly means anything to them. He counts for almost nothing in their lives. Our faith in the risen Jesus impels us to announce to these we know and love in a hundred different ways that Jesus Christ is alive and that we unite ourselves to him by faith and just deeds every day. And that, the guides, that he guides and gives meaning to our lives. In this way, friends, Easter's empty tomb is the ultimate crown of our hope. For the first time, the resurrection tells the human race that our hopes now can be fulfilled. We need not doubt our hopes anymore. Christ's life, death, and resurrection from the grave have supplied legitimacy to our hopes. And God keeps his promises. The hardships of life can make us very skeptical and questioning, much like Thomas in today's Gospel. We can let ourselves become so beaten down by life that our cynicism begins to eat away at our spirit to the extent that we are no longer able to sense God's presence in our space. We fail to see this life of ours as a gift of God, given in order that we might find God and in the process find ourselves. Thomas's cynicism and doubt are transformed by the surprise appearance of the risen Jesus who arrives without knocking on the door into the hope that has bound his brother disciples together. On this day, their doubts disappear. On this day, they suddenly realize that all of this is the truth. He is risen indeed. Our hopes mean something, and they have their finality in Jesus Christ and the life he shares with the Father and the saints. Therefore, we have every reason now to have a new attitude, breathe a breath of fresh air, have a new vision about life and its goings-on, for we know where we are tending. We understand better what it means that we are saved by someone else's pain. We know where it all ends now. God has given us, once again, life, won by an act of his sacrifice, and we are forever grateful. We are convinced that we are indeed loved by this Father in heaven who adopted us as his own within a new covenant displayed in baptism and that gratitude works itself out with our presence here in church to hear his word and nourish ourselves with his sacrament while waiting for him to come back 
to take us with him. On that day, we too shall see his wounds, and he will examine ours as well, only to usher us into a life of blessing without end. It is this Easter proclamation that is the narrative behind sacred ordination and the duty of the deacon to proclaim this faith. So, Timothy, you will serve the Lord Jesus Christ, who was known among his disciples as the one who sacrificed his life for others. Do the will of God generously. Serve God and Holy Church with all your heart. Look upon all unchastity, worldly desires, and ambition as the worship of false gods. For no man can serve two masters, as the Lord himself admonishes. Like the men the apostles chose in those first days, you should be a man of good reputation, filled with wisdom and the Holy Spirit. Show before God and his church that you are above every suspicion of blame, a true minister of Christ and of God's mysteries, a man firmly rooted in the faith. Within the ordination rite, we will place the book of God's word in your hands. You must not only listen to God's word, but also preach it. You will have occasion to preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the foundation of Christian faith, often in your ministry. Hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. Express in your actions what you proclaim with your mouth. Then the people of God, brought to life by the Spirit, will be an offering God accepts through your prayer for intercession. By your own free choice, Timothy, you seek to serve the Church as a professed religious and an ordained servant. Your profession of the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience attached to your ordination equip you with a distinct disposition, setting you apart for official service to the Church. Become then, with your whole heart, a man of God with what you have pledged as a religious and with what you are ordained this day. Our Lord Jesus, who selected the first ministers of salvation, wished them to be introduced to the understanding of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven in ways that could not be explained to others. He wished them to be co-workers with God under a special title as his ambassadors. He called them friends and brethren for whom he consecrated himself so that they might be consecrated in the truth. By your life and character, Timothy, you will give witness to the rest of the Church that God must be loved above all else and that it is he alone whom you serve in others. <laughs>